0: Therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the Word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case the god of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of god for we are not proclaiming ourselves the jesus christ as lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body.
1: Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your presence in this place, and we invite you to do your work. We thank you that we know you care about each of us individually, and, and you have a message for each of us, so we ask that you would speak, um, that we would hear your words. Through Christ we pray, amen. Amen. Chusae Soon is a bit of a folk hero in South Korea. When she was about 60 years old, she decided that she wanted to earn her driver's license. And so, she worked on it. According to the New York Times, she went and took the test once a day, 5 days a week for years. She took the test 400, I'm sorry, 949 times and failed. Finally passed at the 400 the 9 4, I'm sorry, 950th time, took about 10 times at the driving portion of the test before she passed. Once she passed, <laughs> her instructors gave her hugs and flowers. You bet they did. Kind <laughs> of like, glad not to see you again. Um, Hyundai gave her a free car. This is what you call resilience. Resilience is that attitude that says, if I fail at something a hundred times, I haven't really failed I've just discovered a hundred different ways not to do it. It is the attitude of persevering despite discouragement, getting back up when you've been knocked down. One leadership guru said if they could find place, you know, one characteristic in everybody, it would be persistence, resilience. One of the most common causes of failure, he said, is a habit of quitting when somebody is overtaken by temporary defeat. We all heard it when we were kids, didn't we? You know how to finish it. Winners never quit and quitters never. Okay, two of you heard it when you were kids. Um, I understand the most, but everybody understands the, that, that, that instinct to give up. I heard the greatest um, uh, uh, defeat in the history of college football took place between Georgia Tech and Cumberland College out of Kentucky October 7th, 1916. Final score was 222 to nothing. Cumberland never made a first down. Best play, they lost 10 yards. It was like huge grown men playing small young boys. At one point... Uh, according to the s- story, one of the, one of the running backs fumbled the ball, it went to the feet of another back, and he yelled, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. The other guy said, you pick it up, you dropped it. <laughs> we all know the feeling, don't we? It's so overwhelming, and quite frankly, it just feels like we're playing an unwinnable game, you might as well just Quit. Terrible if it doesn't become a character quality. If it doesn't become too easy for you. Um, I was really surprised to read an editorial that called Americans a nation of quitters. There was a leader who wrote an article, how do you lead in the age of quitters? Post-pandemic period has been called the great resignation. Well, I think that's why it's a great time to come to Second Corinthians chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul's theme is don't quit. We love to hear the stories of resilient people because we respect the Booker T. Washingtons and the Rosa Parks, but we also appreciate having them in our lives because who are the best family members, the best spouses, the best co-workers, the best Church members, resilient people because you know they'll be faithful, dependable. When you need somebody to show up, they'll show up. When other people give up, they'll keep their promises. They'll be dependable. And the wonderful thing about resilience is anybody can be resilient. High IQ, low IQ. Rich, poor. Thin, Or (laughs) pastor-sized. Tall or normal height. Anybody can be resilient. I'll take an ordinary resilient person over a superstar quitter any day. How about you? So the Apostle Paul calls us in chapter 4, verse 1, we do not give up. And Paul never did, even though he had more reason to quit than most. He was often beaten, jailed sometimes left for dead, sometimes he was abandoned by friends, shipwrecked. He was of a despised race and a despised religion. And yet the apostle Paul would write in verse 8, as you just read, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, we are perplexed but not in despair. Paul's not a victim, never takes the victim attitude, does he? We are persecuted but not abandoned. We are struck down but not destroyed. I love the paraphrase that says, we get knocked down, but we get back up again and keep going. Isn't that great? So how do you develop resilience? The real question is, how do you develop the strength to give you resilience? That's what we're going to talk about today. I think Paul gives us some wonderful clues to that here. And the first one is, resilient people have a clear commitment to a great cause. If you're going to be resilient, your cause has to be greater than your reason to quit, you see. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul begins, Since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy. I love that. We have this ministry because of the grace of God. We don't deserve it, but we were shown mercy. But since we have this ministry, we do not give up. Paul knew why he was here. Resilient people have something worth living for more important than themselves. More important than an easy life. One guru said resilient individuals find a calling and dedicate themselves to what gives life purpose. As Nietzsche even remarked, he who has a why to live can overcome almost any how. So you want an instant application for this? You want to be really practical? If you want to be resilient, don't follow your heart. The opposite of resilience is follow your emotions. Follow your heart. Resilient people don't do that. They follow their commitment to a greater cause. I love Edgar Guest's poem when he said, When things go wrong as they sometimes will, When the road you're trudging seems all uphill, When the funds are low and the debts are high and you want to smile but you have to sigh. When care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must but do not quit. You never can tell how close you are. It may be near when it seems afar. So stick to the fight when you're hardest hit. It's when things seem worse that you must not quit. Resilient people keep going when things seem worst. Because they're committed to a greater cause than their emotions, than their heart. Kids, that's why when you get up in the morning, and you don't really feel like going to school, and you're not really sick, but you feel like saying to mom, I have a headache, I don't feel... You go to school anyway, because you're committed to an education, theoretically. Okay. When you don't feel like giving your best at work, you give your best anyway because of character. A superior cause. You would really much rather spend time with your friends who are together hanging out, but you practice that piano another hour because you're committed to a greater cause. Cavett Roberts said, character is the ability to stick with a resolution long after the mood in which the resolution was made has left. I would suggest to you, if we are a generation of quitters, it's because we have been told too often, follow your hearts. When you have to follow a cause and a commitment when it's not easy. I read recently that tucked away in a church grounds in a quiet village in Romania, there stands a cottage that is known as matrimonial prison. I'm sorry, it makes me laugh. I do like matrimonial prison sounds wonderful, doesn't it? In the old days, this town in Romania was dominated by the Lutheran church, which had a high value on marriage. Yep, there's some Biblical reasons to divorce, but most are not biblical. So when couples would come to the local pastor seeking a divorce, the pastor would say, I think you need to spend time in our small cottage, barely larger than a pantry, so you can iron out your, the, your issues. This little cottage has one table, one chair, one pillow, one blanket, one plate, one spoon. And they would spend two to six weeks there working out their issues. <laughs> now personally this seems a bit extreme to me. I We do not have a marital uh, prison here at New Life. But you know how effective the method was? There was in the 300 year history of that there was one divorce in town. Nobody wanted to go to marital prison, I'm sure, is part of the deal. But today, in the, there's a s- small dark room that is now called, that's now a, a museum. And those who run it say that even to this day, from time to time, they get couples who will come and say, can we use your cottage to work on our marriages? Resilient people are committed to a greater cause that keeps them going when their emotions say quit. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, Here's the final conclusion. Fear God and obey His commandments, for this is everyone's duty. Kind of a dirty word there, isn't it? Duty. Oh, I can't do it. I don't want to do it just because it's a duty. Really? Sometimes we do things out of duty. When I was a kid, growing up, I was I I was taught the limerick. Um, I slept and dreamed that life was beauty. I woke and found that life is duty. Not the most pleasant limerick in the world. Um, And and don't you know? I, I could take that to an extreme. It's not saying that life is always duty and life is never beauty. But it's making the point. If you are seeking an easy life, you will not be resolute. You have to obey a higher call. Jesus did. John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John eight twenty nine. The Father has not left me alone because I always do what pleases Him. Jesus did not waffle because He was committed, not my will, but yours be done. He went to the cross because of duty for you and me, not because it was a beautiful moment for Him. But once you settle that question, you won't be a leaf in the wind. The Apostle Paul had that same attitude, right? We have been given this ministry, we don't give up. I'm sure there were many times that the Apostle Paul didn't feel like getting up in the, or didn't feel like going to jail, or didn't feel like telling people, your idol worship is wicked, get rid of your idols. And then getting in trouble, getting thrown out of town as a result. But he did it because it was the right thing. It was his calling. It was a high cause And I'm sure Jesus didn't feel like being stripped naked and being nailed to a cross either, but he did it for you and me because he wasn't committed to himself but to the will of the Father. Do you know why you're here? Do you know you're here for a reason that is much more important than the next vacation, the next weekend, the next you know, easy life. You can live a life for ease, and you will not be resilient. You will quit, and you won't accomplish God's purposes for your life either. Resilient people have a great call to great godly cause. Do you know why you're here? I'm going to talk more about that this week in a um, in a devotional, or probably next week. Second, resilient people find strength in a God given. Identity. Do you know who you are? In other words, identity gives us cause, we, it gives us power. We, we, we know that by common sense. Stephen Hawking was a brilliant scientist. At age 21, he was diagnosed with a debilitating uh, d- condition that would leave him immobile over time. He could have used that as an excuse to abandon his pursuits. But he persevered and as a result became one of the most respected scientists, physicists of his generation. A fully functioning body sure would have been a huge advantage to his pursuits, wouldn't it? But Hawkins determined it was not essential. The lesson, identity cannot be broken by adversity. A true God-given identity cannot be broken by Adversity, it enables us to rise above our troubles. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Paul says, we don't give up. Listen to Paul's sense of knowing who he is. Instead, we renounce secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully. Because Paul knew who he was, he didn't have to project an image. He didn't have to try to control what other people thought about him. Or, or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. Nothing is quite so exhausting as inauthenticity. The insecurity of not knowing who you are, and so you're constantly having to project an image to other people. And so you're, you, I mean, your image, your, who are you? you your body image, your, your intellectual image, your, your accomplishments, your, your car, your, your house, your whatever. Verse 5, Paul says, we're not proclaiming ourselves. It's not about us, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and I'll tell you who I am, ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. Who's settled in his identity? I'm a servant of God. It allows you to relax when you know who you are in God's eyes. What's your identity? Masters tournament is a few weeks away. Last, week's, last year's winner was Scott Scheffler. Uh, it was his first major. Um, he actually hadn't won an event until earlier that season. Um, but they said there's no pressure, quite like the pressure of performing at a major tournament, and there's no major tournament more important, maybe the, the, the Open in England, but um, than, than the Masters. No, no more pressure than, in the United States than here. After his victory at the press conference, somebody asked him how he can compete without letting it divine himself as a person. And you know what he talked about? He talked about his identity in Jesus. He said, the reason I play golf is I'm trying to glorify God And all that he's done in my life. So for me, my identity isn't a golf score. That's really self-aware, isn't it? Like my wife Meredith told me this morning. She said to me, if you win this golf tournament today or if you lose this golf tournament by 10 shots, if you never win another golf tournament again, I'm still going to love you and you're still going to be the same person and Jesus is still going to love you and nothing important changes. Scheffler said, all I'm trying to do is glorify God and that's why I'm here and that's why I'm in this position. He could relax as he competed because his focus was not the fear of failure. What are people going to think? Am I going to be able to have this image wearing a green jacket? His, His focus was one thing, glorifying God, being settled in who he is in God's eyes. Paul says, We're commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscious word. Open book. There's power in a God-given identity. You know, so many people today worry about bullies. So many people say, we just need to eliminate the world of bullies. You know, if we teach our kids who they are in Christ, bullies have no power over them you can't bully somebody who knows who they are in God's eyes. Because it doesn't matter what somebody says about them. The only thing that matters is settled with the God of the universe who created them and loves them most says. You want to test for an inadequate identity? An inadequate identity is any identity that you have to keep getting outside affirmation about. People place their identities in so many things. And then they'll say, basically, approve of me, approve of me, approve of me. This is who I am. This is who I am. This is who I am. And so they'll tell you, your identity is in your gender. Your identity is in your sexual orientation. But then they'll be completely insecure until they get the approval of other people. The Apostle Paul says, we don't commend ourselves to anyone but God. Nobody tells us who we are but God. Where do you get your identity? Who are you? Jesus is the great example of this, isn't he? Read through scriptures and you will see Jesus' identity is so clear. And he's clear on that. Just in the book of John alone, there are several different times when Jesus says, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate to the sheepfold. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Seven different times. I am am what's your I am statement in god 's eyes I am what are you going to say you're your body no when you can uh, are clear on what who you are in God's eyes then you'll have confidence you'll be able to endure disappointment I want to share with you a I think a wonderful example of somebody who went from an uncertain sense of identity, always looking for approval from other people, to confident identity as child of God. Her name is uh, Jackie Hill Perry. Listen to her story in her own words.
2: My childhood was... I don't want to say typical, but I think typical to those growing up in black communities. Dad was pretty much inconsistent. I saw him maybe every few years. He would just pop in, be in my life for six months, and then pop back out and just show up whenever he felt like it. My mother worked every weekend, so I would spend Sundays with my aunt, who was a Christian. Um, and so she would take me to church with her like every single Sunday, which was incredibly boring. But I enjoyed the popcorn that the kids got in the Skittles. Childhood was a mixture of abandonment, but not knowing that's what that was, mixed with glimpses of God through my aunt, mixed with seeing my mother work hard. I think middle school and high school was me chasing after love from people. I wanted people to tell me that I'm something, that I'm significant, that I'm somebody. And women, I think, uh, became one of the main sources of that for me. I was confused. I didn't know what to do. I had these feelings that seemed very natural, these thoughts that seemed super normal to me, but I knew it wasn't normal to culture. I grew up in black church. That's like a (laughs) no-no, is to be gay. And so it was projected all the time that this is not okay. But I had read the scriptures pertaining to it being a sin. And so I just believed it. I didn't try to talk myself out of it. Because to me, I felt like what I read in the scriptures was correlating with the conviction I felt. This feeling correlates with what this is saying. (laughs) It's like it's not an isolated situation. But I still didn't know how to come to terms with, this is how I feel, so I'm going to do it. The things I knew about scripture, it seemed like they just would not get out of my head. It was just like God is everywhere, and it was just getting on my nerves. I don't want to be a Christian, I don't want to be saved. Because what I thought Christianity to be was people that just didn't do stuff. You don't listen to secular music, you wear long dresses, you go to church all the time, and you don't curse. If that's what Christianity is, I'm cool on that. I already didn't have peace, but the reminder of the truth was increasing my awareness of my lack of peace. And so I called uh, one of my cousins who was a believer, and she was like, you know what? I believe that God is going to show you how much you need him. I'm like, okay, whatever. I think over the course of some months, that's when I got arrested. My dad ended up passing away from a motorcycle accident, which really broke me because it was kind of like this realization that we'll never talk. From there, me and my mother's relationship was just like, we were not close, we were not cool. It was like everything I was doing, my entire life became uncomfortable. It became isolated, it became just lonely when I was 19 and feeling God speak to my heart and tell me what you're doing will be the death of you. Like this is not an idea anymore that sin will kill me. It's not an idea anymore that God is not pleased with this. Like this is reality and I have to deal with it today. When I reckoned with that, I knew that I could not save myself. I knew I could not walk away from these things because I enjoyed them way too much. And so I knew from Bible study at church when I was five, you died for people like me. You said you'll forgive people like me. And so I'll just believe that. I was in a church in two weeks, wearing girl clothes in a week. That was strange. I wasn't used to wearing regular bras and I had to understand how to sit like a woman again because I was used to sitting like a guy. Just relearning womanness. He did what he had to do to grab me because I would not have chose God apart from God choosing me.
1: Um, I, uh, I do a devotional this week with an extended version of that story in more detail. It's just, just a beautiful story. Um, beautiful, uh, just courageous life. When you see people whose identities are given to them by false gods, it shouldn't make you angry, but it ought to make you cry. Um, Because it's just not true. Listen to a true identity. Galatians chapter 3 verse 27, the Apostle Paul says, those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. One of the reasons that we're baptized is that it's an identity change. We identify with Christ. And what happens, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Your identity is not in your nationality and it's not in your race. In other words, that's a idolatrous identity. Slave or free. It's not in your social status. It's not in how much money you have. Male or female. It's not being macho guy. It's not being feminist woman. Since you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, when our identities are in those shallow things, it divides us. Haven't we found that out recently? But when our identity is in Christ it unites. Verse 29. If you belong to Christ <laughs> there's your identity. You belong to Christ. You are a child of God. You are clean because of Christ. Then you are Abraham's seed. You are the family of God. That's your identity. According And heirs according to the promise. Your identity is eternity with God. Upper story. Who are you anyway? Are you clear on a God-given identity? When you have a God-given identity, he makes it clear for you. I have a friend who who has spent a lot of time seeking God on a specific identity. Part of his identity is untire of knots. And the result of that is he's finding amazing fruitfulness in his work. Where do you find your identity? Um, I've got to be clear on this before we move on. You, we, we live in a world now that will tell us, because idolatrous world will say, you have to come up with your identity. We're telling kids today who are 12 years old, nobody can tell you who you are except you. Really? You want to put that kind of pressure on kids, on anybody? I got to thinking about my NCAA bracket. How many of you have made out NCAA brackets? You're going to make out NCAA brackets this year. Yeah, we all, uh, many of us have. Millions and millions of brackets have been made in the history of bracketology. Do you know how many have been 100% correct? How how many have gotten every choice correct? Zero, zip, zilch, nada. We can't get our NCAA picks correct. And that really doesn't matter that much. You can't, you're gonna trust your decisions, your identity to your own thinking, your own wisdom. Think of all the decisions you'll make this week and how many won't be right. How many decisions you'll make in a single year and how many are less than perfect. Is it any wonder that when we tell our 12 year olds, you've gotta decide what your identity is, and they're so anxious and insecure? The only only identity that gives us confidence for resilience is to know we have a God-given identity that is solid in Him. God-given purpose, cause, God-given identity, foundation. Finally, resilient people are resilient because they know the enemy they're facing must be defeated, is worthy of defeat. One of the great things about sports is arch rivalries. If you're a Red Sox fan, who do you never want to lose to? You never want to lose to the Yankees. That's right. If you're an Auburn fan, you never want to lose to Alabama. Right? If you're a North Carolina basketball fan, you never want to lose to Duke. You know, if you're an Ohio, any Ohio State fans? Who do you never want to lose to? Ever, ever, ever. Michigan. In fact, you, you actually want, if you go, If after you die, you see somebody from Michigan, you're going to wonder if you went to the wrong place. If you're a commander's fan, you know who's your arch rival? You say, the owner. Um, (laughs) (laughs) When you have an arch rival, you just can't quit because you can't stand the idea of the arch rival having a victory. Paul says in verse 4, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul says we have an enemy, enemy, and he is the God of this age. Sometimes he's called Satan, sometimes he's called the prince of demons. You know what Jesus calls him sometimes? Beelzebub. You know, Beelzebub means literally Lord of the Flies. Why is he Lord of the Flies? You know where flies tend to congregate? dung he's the dung king jesus says he's the king of the dung and yet he blinds the eyes of unbelievers to make him lord oh we want to follow king dung king dung has the life that we want to live and so it breaks our hearts. i can't stand the idea of one more person following king dung how about you Now, again, I'm going to do a devotion about how he blinds, but here's our resolve. When you know the damage the enemy causes, you hate for him to get a single victory. And so you don't give up. The Apostle Paul says in verse 6, For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. You are the light of the world. And you say, but I'm not a disciple maker. I can't share Jesus. I don't talk so good. I'm not an evangelist. I could never do that. Paul says, I've got good news for you. It's not about you. Verse 7. We have this treasure in clay jars so that the extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Isn't that great? Paul says, we are clay jars. Clay jars made of dirt. But what matters is we carry a treasure that is precious, the gospel and powerful. Clay jars, in the past, in ancient times, sometimes they would hide the most important documents in clay jars. Because if the place was going to be looted, they would look in the gold things and the silver things, not in the clay jars. Paul says, you're clay jars containing a great treasure. So you feel inadequate? That's okay. God loves using unimpressive clay jars. I hope you've been following what God's been doing through the Asbury... Spiritual renewal at Asbury Seminary. A lot of things have been really impressive about that. One of the most impressive things is how ordinary it has been. They say that the guy who preached right before it began really didn't preach that good of a sermon, which, as a preacher, I'm really disappointed in him. I'd like to give the preacher some credit, but no. You know what happened? They just kept singing. Ordinary people singing ordinary worship songs and God showed up in a way that people just felt his presence and as a result of being in his holy presence in this worship, they were brought to repentance. And one of the things everybody agrees about this Asbury Revival that is spreading to other places, it's a spiritual renewal without celebrities. Isn't that great? It's a spiritual renewal of clay jars like you and me Are you ready? When God changes the world, he doesn't usually look for goblets of gold. He looks for you and me. He looks for 80-year-old women who will just go through a store and ask people, do you know that God loves you? A fifth-grade girl who will invite her friend to Sunday school with her, like the fifth-grade girl who invited my wife to church with her. It's the shy man who feels he doesn't have a whole lot to offer, except he's bold to share how Jesus has changed his life. The addict who feels like he's ruined his life that now God uses to help set other people free. It's the college student who goes to convocation and just starts worshiping. Paul says, you feel like you're weak, you feel inadequate. Welcome to the Clay Jar Club. Since the creation of the world, God has done wonders through dust of the earth. Verse 5, for we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. So let me ask, what can you do, clay jar? People who persevere, resilient Christians, have such a heart for lostness. We have such a Hatred for Satan. We cannot give up. No matter what. What can you do? I'll tell you a simple thing you can do. You can sign up for the prayer and fasting campaign and join us in prayer and fasting. Um, Tom announced there were 100 people that have signed up already. Why aren't there 1,000 people? And it's something that we all... Clay jars can fast and pray Because there's a victory to be won in the blindness of people who are worshiping King Dung. Who can you invite? Who can you talk to? You don't have to force. You can just ask questions. God has called you to great purpose. God has called you to His identity. God has called you because there's a horrible enemy that must be defeated. Let me give a little history and we'll we'll wrap up here. Um, Some of you have seen Jesus' Revolution movie. People say that's a great movie. I I need to see it sometime. Um, It tells the story of of uh, of Greg Laurie, I want to say Peter Laurie, I'm watching too many old movies, of Greg Laurie, who's now a preacher, and the, the Jesus movement in the 1970s, the hippie movement. Do you know what preceded the hippie movement in the 1970s The Jesus' revolution was about? About two years earlier, there was a revival in a small town in Kentucky in a seminary called Asbury. Two years later, God moved in the hippie movement in the, that you're watching about in um, Jesus' Revolution. In that, who did he choose? He chose a guy named Chuck Smith. You don't get more jar clay than Chuck Smith, a name like Chuck Smith, right? I remember when I was a kid hearing him on the radio thinking, why in the world does anybody listen to this guy? Have you ever listened to him preach on the radio? I mean, he's dry. He's kind of monotone. I didn't. He wasn't particularly entertaining. He was pedantic. But there was one thing that Chuck Smith insisted on being the center of the ministry, and that is we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We focus on Christ, and I don't think it's a coincidence that in the very shadow of God working at Asbury, now we're watching a movie about how God works through Chuck Smith and continues to work through Greg Laurie. It's the power of our treasurer. So what's your next step? Because when things go wrong, as they sometimes will, and the road you're trudging seems all uphill... When the funds are low and the debts are high and you want to smile but you have to sigh when care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must. But do not quit. You cannot tell how close you are. It may be near when it seems afar. Anybody trying to reach people that you love and it just seems like they'll never be reached? They're so far. It may be near. So stick to the fight when you're hardest hit. It's when things seem worst that you must not quit. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have called us to a great cause to honor you, to follow your will, to bring your kingdom, to spread your light. God, forgive us for ever allowing other smaller causes to seem more important to us. And God, I thank you that we really find our identity in you because you have shown us over and over who we are in your eyes. Help us to live as you see us and not, and not try to live as other people see us. And Lord, give us a heart for lostness. That there are people that are blinded by King Dung and I just can't stand it anymore. Lord, hear our prayer through Christ. Amen.